Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you from my studio in Dallas, Texas, each and every week. My guest today is so fascinating for me and for not the reason that you would think, and maybe not the reason you might be fascinated by her. My guest is a celebrity. She's one of the most successful poker players of all time, a humanitarian, the author of the new book called Thinking in Bets, but I want her on the show today because she's an incredibly successful business person. She's been able to leverage all of the skill sets for, because of so many different things that Annie Duke has done in her life. We're going to get into tons of it today on the show. Annie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. This is exciting on video and everything. It's going to be great. But, but Annie, I'm from Connecticut. Now, oh, oh, you're from right near where I grew up. But do you call? Do you consider Connecticut New England? Yes, you do, because you're a real New Englander. Yeah, but but to be fair, I, I may I may be more likely to call it New England because I had family in Connecticut when I was growing up. Gotcha. So that was the connection. So we, but you, yeah, you grew up in you grew up where? What state? Oh, New Hampshire, like deep New England. Yeah. What, what was what was going on? I mean, the the path that you have taken is so fascinating to me. What was going on at the kitchen table when you were a kid? What was the conversations? What were you being told that led you on this path? Uh, well, let me think. Um, well, first of all, I, I think there, there are a couple things. I think number one is that when I was growing up, uh, we played so much cards you you like can't even imagine i mean i would say that we were probably averaging four nights a week for a few hours mm -hmm. uh me my brother and my father and it wasn't poker which you know i think that people think oh you must have been playing it wasn't poker but um we were playing things like gin and oh hell and hearts oh hell is like a simplified version of bridge hearts um and, and things like that. And then, and then actually I did start playing bridge as, as my dad's bridge partner when I was 14. Hmm. So I think that first of all, that was going on and people who play a lot of cards, I think really get uh, interested or at least get to, to really understand uh, sort of the influence of luck, like how much luck is there and the way things turn out. Um, you know, how much do your decisions really matter? How much control do you really have over the outcome? And then I think something really important, which is, um, once, once there's all this luck in the equation, so, you know, just on the turn of a card, you can have, have some bad thing happen. How, when you actually have an outcome, you know, when, when there's the result of something and it doesn't work out or it does work out, how are you supposed to work backwards? Cause it's, it's very noisy. So I think there was number one, mm -hmm. that, and then number two, I happened to grow up, uh, the, the child of two educators, my mom, uh, for most of my life, didn't actually teach, but that's what she was trained as. And my father was a teacher. Um, and the the table was just a lesson in debate. My father was actually the, the debate coach um, at the high school that he was teaching at. And, and so I think everything was, was treated as a debate and you needed to be able to defend your side hmm. and you needed to be comfortable with someone disagreeing with you. And you you really had to learn to not just say like, you're wrong. Like you had to be able to support um, 
your assertions. And that's really what the dinner table was like. It wasn't, we didn't have the normal, like, how was your day? That's nice. <laughs> you know, it was, I want to talk about this really important, you know, assertion that I'm about to make and boom, you know, debate ensues. So I think that's probably two of the things that led me to where I am. But what about judgment? Was, was, was your opinion, if not argued properly, judged as not a good argument, therefore it's a bad opinion? Or did they just want to see you fight to support the argument or the opinion? Uh, I think that there, it, was, it was probably more an emphasis on the rhetoric. So, uh, yeah, they, it, was, it was more about be able to support your side, like to be able, be able to support your assertion. And if you couldn't support it, then you have to question your opinion. So it wasn't so much that that means that your opinion is wrong or right. I mean, for one thing, um, opinions are rarely one or the other, right? They're usually a mix. They're usually sitting somewhere in between, which I think is a really important thing to recognize. Um, and if you can't support the argument, it's probably a clue that you should go try to, you know, sort of examine the opinion. It doesn't necessarily mean that the opinion is in the completely wrong category. Uh, it just means that you probably don't know why you believe it, which I think is actually um, a really important concept. And it's one that actually, uh, so one of my favorite philosophers is John Stuart Mill. He wrote a book called On Liberty. Um, and he actually talks about this, I think, in a really uh, insightful way where he says, even if you, even if you're a hundred percent sure that something is true, like e even if let's say that you could be a hundred percent sure of some belief that you have or some assertion that you're making, you still need to be able to support the opinion because if you can't support it, then the truth is atrophied. It's like there, there's kind of no meaning to the truth anymore. If you can't, if, if you can't actually properly argue the side, this is, is even if I'm a hundred percent sure that I'm right and you're wrong. Like I still have to be able to defend my side, otherwise there's kind, otherwise truth loses its meaning, and I, I think that I was definitely brought up with that ethos. Mm. And how were you trying to fit in, or were, you, in other words, were you looking for admiration when you were creating these opinions? Were you back in your room saying, "At tomorrow night's dinner table, I'm going to throw <laughs> this one out to to Dad and see how he goes." I don't know. The way our memories work, I feel like I would just be making it up. <laughs> you know, I think I would be telling you a just so story. Uh, so my answer is I, I have no idea. Like, you know, I think it's so hard to remember, like, what was I like when I was eight or nine or 10 or 11? Because I think that we so impose who we are now or what we imagine we would like to be. Totally. On, you know, so I, 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 it would be so hard for me to say. I have a wonderful friend. His name is Bill Woodich. And Bill Woodich says, the more successful we become, the more negative we remember our upbringings, the more pain we begin to extract. Because there has to be some reason to justify the success. Because at success, most of us are like, I don't know how I got here. It was right. just, there was no plan. It just happened. So we have to find some reason. And most people really go to two extremes. I had the most unbelievable upbringing as a kid, or it was the worst upbringing as a kid. My dad was so mean every night, right? Yeah, no, what, what I would say, I mean, I, you know, it's kind of interesting because when you asked me, like, well, what happened in your upbringing? Like, I was trying to tell you some things that probably have to do with my cognitive style, like the way that I think. But, but 
the the answer for me, I mean, literally, I, I was like, oh, I wonder where he's going with this because I think my gonna my answer is gonna be, I'm like, I was like a ball in a pinball machine. That's kind of how I got here. I I feel like I I, I sort of you know, got, I went over here and then I got batted over here and then I got batted over here and then I got batted over here. And each time, you know, I got batted by the paddle. I was like, Oh, look where I am. Hmm. Do I like being here? <laughs> Maybe I'll do something with this. And then, um, and I think that one of the, the best examples that I can give is actually how I ended up from uh, graduate school on my way to become a professor to uh, being a poker player. And the answer is, as I was going out for my first job talks to go get a job as a professor, in fact, um, the this day was in before, Montana. this in Montana. So this is so I was at graduate school in Penn at mm. Penn at U Penn in, in Philadelphia, and uh, I had done all five years. I you know I had done my my the research for my dissertation and so on, and I was going out to actually interview to become an assistant professor. And during that year, I'd been struggling with some stomach issues, which really. Um, got very severe mm. right before I was going out to interview. And so I actually ended up in the hospital for two weeks. I, I couldn't keep any food down. Um, and so obviously I had to delay these job talks and um, in academics, it's a seasonal market. So like you missed a season too bad for you. You have to wait until, you know, a full year until the next one. So I just needed something to do in the meantime. So I'd gotten sick. I was in the hospital for two weeks. I got out of the hospital and um, I, it's like, okay, well, so now I need to recuperate. I'm not teaching, so I don't have money coming in from that. And uh, I don't have my fellowship anymore, so I don't have money coming in from that. Oh, I need money. And my father, <laughs> I mean, my brother, rather, yeah. I mean, th this is the thing. Like, I, And I think that the, it's okay to recognize the luck and how you got to where you are, you oh, know? Man. I mean, everybody needs lucky breaks, right? Totally. So, um, so had you asked me at the time, I would have said, yeah, I mean, next year I'm going to go out and be a professor. But while I needed money, my brother suggested that I go and start playing poker, which I did. And, you know, it turned out I was kind of good at it. And I made, you know, and I was making a lot of money at it. And I really enjoyed it. Like, mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed the experience of learning the game. And, you know, the meantime turned into like 20 years. So, but it was a complete accident of fate. If I hadn't gotten sick, I would have gone off to my job interviews and i'd probably just be a professor today i mean i, I don't know but I, it's probably what i would be but you call you you use the word luck and see like I, you know we, that ping pong ball or mindset is is accurate i think on a lot of my early things too but i don't know that i look at it as luck that got me here and the reason i say that is because it's been hell like i look at my business career like most small business owners look at it. And most small business owners should have never been the business owner or the entrepreneur. They should have worked for somebody else and, and through value creation and problem solving, et cetera, worked up the ladder. And by the way, the, the number two person at Facebook who's nobody's ever heard of is still worth a couple billion bucks. Right. So you don't have to be the lead, but you look at yours as luck. So when you think about your primary career, because you have multiple careers, but when right. you talk about poker, you do look at poker as luck and therefore happiness and you enjoyed this this run as a poker player? Well, so let, let me just say, like, I, I don't think of luck as good or bad. I think of luck as uh, mm. th those those things that are not in our control. God. Right. So that that's all that luck is. So I got sick. That that wasn't really in my control. Uh, so I couldn't go off for my job talks. It just wasn't in my control. So there I was. Now, that doesn't mean that wherever you land, you're supposed to, you know, you want to try to make the best of wherever you land. 
but there's lots of luck in the way that our lives turn out. Here, here's luck in the way our lives turn out. I was born uh, during a time when there was indoor plumbing. Right. I mean, I, I could have been born 200 years ago. It would have been a very different life. By the way, particularly for a woman, it would have been a really different life 200 years ago. But lucky me. Right. I was born at a different time. So cool. It's a great way of looking at it. luck almost as a data point for you then. Sure. Yeah. It's it's no matter no matter what happens in your life, it's the result of some combination of your decision making and luck. There are only two things that determine the way that our lives turn out, the mm. decisions that we make and luck. Mm. So the way that I look at it is get really comfortable with the luck element. You can't control it. So you should just get comfortable with it. And just because you acknowledge it doesn't take away from your accomplishments in any way, shape or form. Like the acknowledgement that, there, that I had some things happen to me that sent me into directions that were unexpected, that weren't necessarily in my control. That doesn't take away from, from me the decisions that I've made in my life or how I got to where I was. It just means that there was some combination of the two. It's funny. So get I... really comfortable. Yeah, just get really comfortable with luck and then focus on the thing that you actually have control over, which is the decisions that you make. You know, I wanted I thought it was gonna go a little different direction on your on your movement in those early days. I thought you were going to tell me that New Hampshire was this very and, and I'm not saying you didn't say this, but that New Hampshire was very open and free and that's what drove you in these different sort of I want to try this I want to try that but but reality is it wasn't it was actually a path fairly concrete path school mm -hmm. education highly educated health takes me in this different direction so it was it was fairly um I don't want to say premeditated because because obviously the the, the sickness drove the, the the completely different direction but you really weren't just playing in New Hampshire, having fun in this free environment. No. It was a fairly structured environment in a way. No, not not only that, but certainly in my family, the expectation was you go to college. And, yeah. and by the way, the expectation was college isn't the end of your education. Mm -hmm. Both of my parents had advanced degrees. So, um, I, you know, when I was growing up, both of my parents had master's. And then my father actually went on to get his PhD, uh, actually, when I was when I was a child. So, uh, there was definitely an expectation that like the, the path forward is education. And, and I think partly uh, that partly really came from my father because my father's father, my grandfather uh, dropped out of school in sixth grade. He mm. was an orphan and he, he needed to support himself. And so he was a salesperson and he started selling like door to door, you know, when he was 12. Um, and so that was the end of his education. So I think that my father saw sort of what his path in life had been, you know, high school, college, mm -hmm. um, then, then on to graduate, a graduate program as really his path to success is the way that his family had come out of the situation that they had been in. And there was absolutely an expectation that we follow in, in those footsteps. I mean, I would add that, uh, you know, another place where luck really intervened um, in an interesting way in my life was in 2002. So I, I, I declared myself to be a professional poker player in 94. So that's when I really made the, the decision, like, no, poker is going to be my thing. I'm not going to go uh, into academics. Um, but then in 2002, I actually, that was when I started giving keynotes and really thinking about how the things that I had been studying in graduate school that had to do with, you know, the way that people think, the way that people learn, um, you know, the way that we interact with our environment, how, how that and what I had done in poker might merge together to create an interesting message. 
Um, but that also happened somewhat by accident. In 2002, a friend of mine, Eric Seidel, who's an incredible poker player, he had actually started uh, his career off as an options trader. And a friend of his from back in those days um, had a hedge fund and, and asked Eric to come and speak to a retreat of his options traders um, about risk and what you could learn about risk from poker. Well, Eric really doesn't like public speaking. I mean, this is a guy who does not want to be up in front of a room. Genius guy. It's too bad for those rooms, by the way, because yeah. they, would, they would really learn a lot if he was willing to do that. But he doesn't like it. So he declined but said, hey, you know, my friend Anna used to teach um, at Penn. So uh, she might be someone who would be good to have get up in front of your room. And so um, he pawned it off on me. Uh, and that was the first talk I ever gave. I wasn't I didn't think to myself one day, you know, it would be really good. I, I should start a business that's keynoting and consulting and corporate retreats. And maybe eventually I'll write a book about this topic. I wasn't thinking that at the time. It was, oh, he wants me to get up and, and talk. That might be something really interesting because yeah. I, I, I can think explicitly about poker and what it might teach you about the way that people think. So I did that. And then I started getting referred from that one speech. And um, then, you know, probably a couple years down the road, I was like, you know, I'm getting these referrals and I kind of really like this. So now let me put some intentionality to it. Yep. Um, and I think that I'll develop this as a career. What people didn't know when they saw me on television during the 2000s, um, when poker was really all over TV, that that was actually a smaller part of my professional life than the keynoting and the corporate retreats and the consulting. It's just they I'll put that on television. But so, see, I know that yeah. about you. That That's really what's so intriguing to me. And it's what I really wanted to talk about. Um, I want to talk about the book and I want to talk about the business career far more so than poker, if yeah. that is acceptable to you. Please. No, I retired from poker in 2012. There's a lot better people to talk about poker than me. Well, look, I mean, I play the, my experience with poker. I play poker second Tuesday of every month for the last 13 years with these Love old guys. It. But And it's a $20 buy-in. I mean, that's my experience with Love poker. It. So, Love right, it. so, so we, I can't really help. I don't need your help on it because if I lose the 20, I'm okay. I don't even... It's, I have... I. What I want to talk about is this transition, and you already went there, so thank you for getting there ahead of my agenda. But you're, oh, what I'm I was, sorry. <laughs> I, I wanted to figure out this pivot point, and was it a calculated pivot point of how do I leverage my expertise in this one career and figure out a way to translate it to another career? And you just said that, no, it really wasn't calculated. It was a little bit of luck that your friend, Eric, yeah. says, hey, Eric, you're better at this than me. Go do this. Yeah, I mean, like, might I have gotten there on my own? You know, possibly, uh, but it was certainly, you know, it certainly got me there a lot earlier than mm -hmm. I would have. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that it was, um, it, it was kind it was, it really was like a very lucky thing because I did, I did have this background already in really studying, uh, you know, bias and thinking and learning and particularly uh, how do you learn uh, in systems where um, there's a lot of noise in the feedback that you're getting, right? So, um, you know, and you know this from from your business, like you can have a good outcome that was kind of lucky where it turns out that you actually didn't have a lot of control over the way that that, that deal went. Um, uh, but you can also have a bad outcome that, that really isn't at all because you made any bad decisions. Um, so you kind of have the whole world of it, right? You can have a good outcome that's kind of mostly because of your decision-making or mostly because of luck. You can have a bad outcome that's mostly because of your decision-making or maybe mostly because of luck. 
But no matter what, like whether it's mostly luck or mostly skill, all you have is the outcome itself to look at. So you can think about this like from a poker standpoint of um, I win a hand or I lose a hand. Is that because I played poorly or is it because the cards didn't go my way? You know, kind of hard to say, particularly when the cards remain face down, which they mostly do. So there's all this hidden information. It's not like you get to take a look and say, oh, I can calculate the, out the odds exactly because I know exactly what, you know, Matt has in his hand. So we're in the credit business and we have a problem going on right now with one of the banks that buys a lot of our loans. So right. we have $900,000 worth of losses um, spread out over 11 accounts, which is a very small amount to have 900 grand against. Um, and so the last two weeks have been nothing but conference calls with the banks. And what's right. everyone doing? Everyone is systematically going through the data point checks of what went wrong. And uh, interestingly enough, all the boxes have been checked. The credit box was not deviated. The customers all qualified. Uh, there is there is one little deviation in which two of the transactions, we, we did the deal on equipment that was older than we normally would do, and both mm-hmm. of the engines failed. So I'm not trying to get specific about it, but, there, but these things are... But the primary thing is that nothing was in our control on two of the transactions. One guy died at the steering wheel with a heart attack, and another guy oh. got cancer and died in six months, and the, he gave, the, his children were totally unprepared to run the business, okay? Right. Those two transactions equate to about $500,000. So what I'm getting at is the decision-making in business, and you know this as well or better than 99% of the people out there, you can check all the boxes mm-hmm. and the systems can all work just the way they're supposed to work. And those one or two things that are completely out of control can kick your ass. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, here, here's, here's the deal that I would say is that in your business, if there was a way to create a model for who you lend to that guaranteed that no one would ever default, I bet you wouldn't have a business mm-hmm. because everybody would be in that business, yeah. right? Oh, great. I have a model that guarantees the way that this will turn out. I will be paid back 100% of the time. Okay, I'll lend you money at that. By the way, I'll lend you money at like half a percent. Mm-hmm. Like, let's go, right? But that's not the case. It's you have some sort of model. And what you're saying is that given the return on investment, I, I understand that there's some probability that it's not going to, you know, that there's going to be a default, or there's some probability that it's going to take longer to be paid back. I guess that gets taken care of by interest. But there's some probability that there's going to be a default. But across the basket of, of investments that I've made, across the basket of loans that I've made, I also understand that I'm more going to get the return for whatever the basket of defaults is. Like there's some subset of them that are defaults. And that actually for any particular loan that I give, I, I actually don't know whether that one in particular will default. I know that there's just some sort of probability across the basket. But the problem is that you just got at, which is the conversation that you're having with the banks, is that once the outcome is known, people think that they can then go back and derive the decision quality, that those are somehow, even though prospectively we kind of understand, well, I'm going to loan this to this person. Obviously, it's not a guarantee that I'm going to get paid back. Like We kind of know that. Um, And that's baked into the decision. When then it, it defaults, they're like, how did you not know? Clearly, that was 100% to happen. Let's look at where all of your decision-making went wrong. Yes, that's exactly the conversation we're having. 
Right. So, so I actually, so, so I opened my book with what, what I think is a, a really wonderful example of the problem of what happens once you have an outcome. Um, and it's, it demonstrates a concept called resulting, which is exactly what you just described. Your banks were resulting on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and resulting is saying, if I know the quality of the result, that tells me everything I need to know about the quality of the outcome, which in chess, I suppose, is pretty reasonable. Like if you lose to me in chess, I probably made better decisions than you and, and vice versa, right? But in poker, that's really absurd. And, and in life, that's really absurd. So I opened the book with what happened to the Seahawks in 2015 in the Super Bowl. Um, it's, it's fourth down. I mean, sorry, it's uh, second down, fourth quarter, 26 seconds left, one yard line, one timeout. They're down by four. And Pete Carroll calls a pass play. The pass is intercepted. And, and, you know, it was like the headlines the next day were like your bankers just yelling like that was the worst thing I've ever seen. How could you ever make a decision to pass there? Um, and this is a really clear example of resulting because we can do the thought experiment pretty quickly, right? So I would ask you there if Pete Carroll passes the ball and it's caught for a touchdown in the end zone, what do you think the headlines are? Yeah, he's the hero. He's, he's the hero. a hero. Yeah. But what we know, just like with mm-hmm. your – uh, situation is that that shouldn't happen. Like if we can imagine that we would change our opinion about the quality of the decision based on one single outcome, there's something really wrong going on here because the mathematics of the decision remain the same, regardless of whether it's intercepted or, or, or caught or caught for a touchdown. So, um, you know, so this is a really big problem and how do we learn that? Because if, what it means is that when there's a bad outcome, we take bad lessons from it, meaning that we, we assume that this is a decision that we shouldn't repeat. Uh, that's really bad for learning. And if we assume that because there was a good outcome, because it happened to get caught for a touchdown, that it's a decision that we should repeat. Yes. Yeah. Also, also really bad. Just so people know, the chances of an interception in that spot, if you take the last 15 years of data, in the NFL, we're only between about one and 2%. Yeah. So we're talking about a super, super, super rare event that occurred. It's like your guy dying at the steering wheel. Totally. Okay. <clears throat> I'll loan it to him again, though. Like, give me the same information. I'll loan it to him. I, it's not like I'm going to go get a, an electrocardiogram on every single person <laughs> I lend money to. Like that, we'll have to raise be... rates to be able to do that. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what's unique about it, because... Of all those tens and tens of millions of dollars of loans that have paid perfectly, everyone is resulting, and everyone is trying to come up with with future projections against the resulting. Um, And some of those projections go like this in my world. Buy more loans to mitigate the expense of the risk, which means push harder, which then you get credit guys who say, well, wait a minute, are we pushing in the wrong direction, right? Maybe we should just be cutting it off and ceasing all business, right? Which we know is not the case. Or the introduction of new facts, which is why did you guys not let us know of these problems a little bit earlier and the Mm -hmm. severity of these problems because we would have gotten more involved. And by the way, even if it all crashes and burns, like it looks like on these deals it will, we will buy the equipment and we will resell the equipment and we'll forward those proceeds to you guys. We'll take our right. cost and anything above our cost we'll forward back to you, which then mitigates against the 900 grand. And guess what, guys? We may end up coming out with 700 grand coming back to you. We're down 200 grand and we shouldn't even have this conversation in the first place. Right, right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, and, and I think that this is the big problem that we have uh, in, you know, Aldous Huxley said, uh, I'm going to probably mangle the quote, but uh, it was something to the effect of um, essentially experience is a, is a very good teacher, but it's not sufficient, right? Yeah. It's o- only if only if the student listens. Yeah. I, I think it's experience is a very good teacher, but it's only effective if the student listens. It's something something like that. People can look it up and, you know see that I totally mangled it. But, but the idea is exactly that, that like, obviously we need to have a lot of experience to become experts in, in something and, and, and to be able to learn and become really good at it. But in order to do that, we actually have to learn the right lessons. We have to be listening to what the outcomes have to tell us. And what we, what we tend to do is we tend to take these shortcuts, right? We tend to have these reactions to the way that it, uh, the way that things turned out that really cause a distortion uh, in the way that we're thinking about things. So sometimes like we're panicking in spots where we shouldn't. Sometimes all of a sudden, like you have a couple bad outcomes that get strung in a what row, which, you know, given the overall probability of any given uh, deal failing, for example, or defaulting, it's not surprising that maybe you get three in a row that kind of go bad. It's that, That's just sort of baked in. But people have such a strong reaction to it that now all of a sudden it's, we need to change, change strategy. We need to redo our model we need to stop loaning or we need to loan more or whatever it is, all of which might be horrible things to do, particularly because you're reacting to something that you shouldn't even be reacting to. It's, it's so, uh, I was going to say strange, but it's, it's what you're talking about is very complicated and it's very well done in the book. I listened to the audio program, by the way, you did a great job. By the way, just oh, on a side you. note, I had Bob Berg on, on the podcast. Love and, him. And he referenced your book as one of the greatest books he's ever read. And he had <gasps> he had hundreds of books. And he said it's a fraction of his collection. So so big props to you for that. Bob oh, Berg. Oh, thank a, you. I love him. Yeah, he's a good guy. He was yeah. on, he was on uh, I don't know, Billy, what day was he on? Monday? Or did we have him? Um, he was a great guest, by the way, too. So yeah, but just you that, know what he's got like he's got that great like radio kind oh, of. Oh, he voice. sure does, totally. You yeah. know, he's a, he's a true like, speaker. Oh, he's a good yeah. speaker. I wish I had that voice. <laughs> One last thing on this, by the way, you beat me to getting to the book. I think that's the third uh, time in this podcast that you got to where I was going, and that's probably your your skill in business too, right? You're seeing things before I get to them. But I don't know, or I'm just talking too much. Take your pick. <laughs> don't people? Don't people want to hear the answer and therefore dictate their action against someone else's answer? I talk about it in my book where the importance of research and development, research and analysis is so required to mitigate risk. We are so afraid of risk and risk to me is determined through most people not doing enough research and analysis. And therefore, we're looking yeah. for someone else to tell us the answer. So in my early right. days of business, I was told only one hand works the register. And guess who I was told that by? A guy who ran this little itty-bitty grocery store, and he worked 90 hours a week at the register because he didn't trust anybody. How the hell am I going to cut thousands of checks every month if I'm the only one who has to print the checks and sign the checks? It's, it was the worst information of all time. But guess what? For the first 10 years of my business, that's what I did. Because I believed that oh, nobody else yeah. was supposed to touch Only one hand touches the register. Because if anybody else touches it, they're going to steal your money. How stupid is that? Yeah. So here, that, that actually, I, I love that you just asked me that question. So uh, it, it's so insightful that you're, you're connecting that together. Um, so first of all, I just like, I really appreciate this question. So here, here's the issue is that uh, we tend to form beliefs in a very haphazard way. So 
uh, generally what happens, particularly if it's someone who you think has some authority, uh, you hear somebody say something and you, you actually just lodge it as a belief before you do a lot of vetting of it. Um, and so now let's say in your case, you have this belief that only one hand should touch the register. And then it's very, very hard to dislodge that belief. Because what we, what we think is that we, we think of ourselves as these people who are like, well, I'm just looking at all this information objectively, and then I'm processing it. And obviously, then I'm incorporating that and changing my beliefs based on what, you know, my read of the objective truth is, but that's not actually what we do. And you can tell me if you feel like this was true for the first part of your career, was we have a belief, and then that actually drives the way that we process information. So what happens is that we notice all sorts of things that confirm the belief we have. So we'll hear other people talk about the same thing, like other people saying, yes, only one person should ever touch the register. And we'll hear people say, yes, oh, I had a horrible experience. I delegated out something and it was just a disaster and this guy stole from me. And so you'll hear all of these instances that confirm the belief you're ha you'll have and you'll be like, yes, I knew it. And, and it strengthens your belief. But then the other thing that happens is that when there is something that disconfirms the belief, some piece of evidence, either someone telling you, like, I love delegating, I think it's great, you'll figure out all sorts of ways to discount it. You know, well, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about, or I can see where it's actually causing him a problem, because, you know, he has, uh, you know, there's some sort of 5% slough that, that he's got to always take on every single month that, you know, he could not be worrying about, or he, you know, you, you come up with all sorts of different ways that you can discount uh, the information that actually disagrees with you. So, so now what's happening is that you have this belief that was formed quickly and without a lot of research, that belief is now lodged, particularly if it's delivered by someone who you think is an authority. And now that changes the way you process all new information, which is just really to, to, to support the belief that you already have. And, and it's hard to get away from it. So you can tell me if that feels like kind of, you know, why it took so long for you to get there. It's 100 percent why. That's exactly it. I, my tapes were recorded wrong, and I continued to turn to a network of people who reinforced how my tapes were recorded, and it cost me a decade of my success. It's one of the key factors of my book, the podcast, even my life, I think. The, the, the final push of my life is to assist people in seeing everything differently. And then doing the research and analysis on their own, just like you were talking about as your upbringing, to be able to force the data points that reinforce your opinion of whether it was true or not. And I believe yeah. it's a skill set of the most highly successful people I know. That's why I asked you the question about judgment earlier, because I, the most highly successful people I know are completely in the middle. They're mm -hmm. only looking for the data points. They don't care where they come from. I'm white, black, Chinese, nicely dressed, poorly dressed, good car, bad car, car watch, no watch. It's irrelevant to them. They just want to absorb yep. it, process it in their own systemology, and then decide. Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Um, so I think, let me just start with a, a overall mindset issue. Like, yeah. how are you approaching the world? And, and I think there are two ways that you can approach the world. And initially, they're going to sound like the exact same thing. So, but I'll separate them out. I think that you can either <clears throat> approach the world, world as wanting to be right or approach the world. Uh, sorry. Uh, you can either approach the world as wanting to be right or approach the world as wanting to be accurate. 
Now, I know that kind of sounds like the same thing because right and accurate seem like they're synonyms, but they're not exactly the same. So let me explain what I mean by those two different approaches to the world. If you approach the world wanting to be right, what that means is I have these prior beliefs and my approach to information and my approach to the world is that I want those beliefs to be right. So I'm just going to uh, process information in a way to affirm my rightness, which is going to cause me to entrench in the belief. It's going gonna, it's gonna to distort the way that I process new information. It's going to make it harder for me to learn and certainly make, make it harder for me to change my opinion. If you approach the world wanting to be accurate, what that means is I would like to construct the most accurate beliefs that uh, model the objective truth as best as possible. So I would like to have accurate beliefs, not beliefs that are just right, right? I want to I I focus on accuracy. This is my goal. Um, and if you want to be accurate, now you have to stand in the middle. You have to stand in the middle and say, what does this guy over here say? And what does this person over here say? And what's this person over here say? Um, because I need to hear all sides in order to come up with an accurate point of view. Because what I really understand is that if two people hold very extreme opinions that are opposite each other, where both people are equally well-informed, I'm going to assume that by definition, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. It has to, sort of by definition, if they're equally well-informed, um, and yet they're extremes. So if you approach the world saying, I would like to be accurate, it's not about being right, we can sort of roll back to the title of my book, which is Thinking in Bets. So what we can think about is, Who's going to win in a bet? If we start betting with each other, is the person who wins the one who approaches the world just trying to affirm all the things that they already believe, right? Are they going to win if we're betting a lot? Or is the person with the most accurate model of the objective truth going to win if we're betting against each other a lot? And I, obviously, it's the person who has the most accurate view of the world, who has the most accurate beliefs. So... I, you know, I think that when you make that overall mindset shift, it gets you into this open mindedness that you're talking about, where you're not just looking for information that agrees with you. In fact, you're particularly interested in information that disagrees with you, because that's the most valuable information. I already know why I believe what I believe. I want to know why you believe something different. That's the most helpful to me. It sounds like you're of the two you're leaning towards accurate as the, and I'm going to use this word because I don't know if it's the right word. It's the only one that's come to me as the better of the two mindsets. Is that is that accurate that I just oh, said that Oh, I you? think there's no question it's the better mm -hmm. of the two mindsets. If you're, if you're processing the world just to affirm the things that you already believe, you will not change your mind. So you still would be the only person touching the cash register. Yeah, right. But you know that would the, still be the case. You wouldn't have changed your mind. You know, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the accurate, though. And one of those pressure points for that person who leans towards accurate, in my opinion, Annie, is that they better pick big enough hills to climb. Because if they're doing all of this work and they have vision and goals, it's kind of what you were referencing, right? That I'm, why, why do I need to be accurate? Well, I need accuracy to achieve these things that I want to achieve. Well, you better pick big enough hills because it's going to take a lot of work to figure that process out. And at the end, you could achieve a lot of things. Is that is that something that you would agree with? I know it's a little bit out there, but would you agree with that? Because who cares about being accurate 
if, if the achievement for the work to be accurate wasn't really much, whether it was happiness, relationships, so, right. fitness, money. So here's why. I think that this is a mindset that's great to approach even if you're just ordering off a menu in a restaurant. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And the reason is that we're all pretty good at setting these really big goals, right? But it's all these executional decisions along the way that trip us up. It's all these decisions sometimes where we don't even realize we're making a decision that trip us up. So if you don't have a mindset shift that says, I- I'm going to be very open-minded to dissent. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to approach the world through the lens of why am I wrong oh, I crave versus that. why am I right. I love right? That. So that's the difference between right and accurate, right? Right is approaching the world as why am I right? accurate you ha- you must approach the world through the lens of why am i wrong um and when you do that every decision now gets colored by that mindset and here's the deal it's like you know about compounding interest right so you make these small shifts in the quality of each decision that you make hmm. and those build up over time does it guarantee that you're going to get to the top of the mountain. Of course not. I can't give you that guarantee. There's lots and lots of people who have started businesses who are really smart and have really good strategy and, and were mathematical favorites for that business to succeed. And luck has intervened in some way that isn't to their favor and their business, you know, fell apart. You, you, let's say that you started a business in, in 2004 that was just really ramping up that was in the real estate industry and all of a sudden right? Like this thing, the world intervenes on you. You know, you might've been a super smart guy with a great strategy. So can I guarantee that you're going to get to the top of the hill? Absolutely not. But what I can guarantee you is this, as you improve even the littlest bit, each decision that you make, the probability that you get to that top of the mountain is higher. The probability that the outcomes in your life, and this isn't just about business, whether it's in relationships or the way you're raising your children or your health, your happiness, you know, success in any way that you want to define it, you've increased the probability that you'll get there. I love that we just went through that. That is like, that is, I'm a mindset guy. Are you a mindset person? Do you lead with the? Totally. So I, I have to lead with mindset. Everything yeah. I lead, everything has to be foundationally built on that. And I love these two connections here. Um, you must be something else to go to dinner with, though. I'll tell you what. I mean, <laughs> holy mackerel. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually pretty easy to go to dinner with because I'm a vegan. So there's usually one thing on the menu for me to order. I'll have the, so salad not, I'll have the right, salad I'll, I'll have the side of broccoli. Thank you. <laughs> so... I, I want to, you have a perspective on things that I don't, right? And what I mean by that is in your, specifically in your business career, maybe a lot of other people keep coming back to poker. I keep coming back to the business experience that you have. Because well, I appreciate you, that. That's, that's the bigger part of my life, actually. So. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that you made more money in that aspect of your business than poker, even though you had a very successful poker career, right? I mean, that's yeah. been the goose that's laid the golden egg for you, correct? Is that fair to say? Uh, let me think about that. Um. Well, I want it to be. Yeah, That's I how say, I want to position. Yeah, I, w- I would say that I've made. I, yes, I would say that I, I've made more money. Yes, I would say that that that's accurate. I need to go. Yes, no, I would say that that's accurate. Mm, but that's a lot of money in either situation. But yeah, here's yeah, I did pretty well. You done great. Here's the thing, though: the crowds that you've run in 
are very different crowds than I have run in. I finance very blue collar industries. I'm a blue collar guy, I'm a blue collar company. And, 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 and the people that you're working in who are looking for this extraction of Annie's decision making so they can make gobs of money, on Wall Street particularly, I'm using that as a specific reference, but you talk to a lot of other types of people and groups. I'm fascinated to learn, is there any room for emotion in that world? Or does it have to be, does data beat emotion? In the, in the business of making money? That's the question that I took a little bit to get to, but that's the question. Well, I think it, I think it depends on how you define emotion. So uh, let me just, just for the sake of argument, define emotion as your gut feel mm-hmm. um, or your intuition. Like what is your gut telling you to do? Um, the answer is, of course, gut has a role. I mean, I, I think that it would be really disastrous if every single decision that you ever made uh, you like built out a probabilistic decision tree. You would never get out the door of your house in the morning. That would be pretty crazy. Um, li- likewise, like e- even in business settings, like there are some times where you have to, you you have to do something really in the moment, you know, on the turn of a dime. Like you're in, you're in a sales meeting and you've gone in with a particular st- strategy and and you're planning for things to go a certain way and you're on a particular script. And something, something happens in the meeting that you feel like that you can feel, which causes you you're like, oh, I better change strategy. Um, and you don't have time. Like you just don't have time to go and vet it with other people and really work through the decision and say, tell me why I shouldn't be doing this. Um, argue against me, you know, all those things that you might do in advance. Um, so, of, of course, there's a role for that. And I, and I think there's a very important role for it. What I do think, though, is that uh, if you need, you need a marriage between your gut feel and this more rational decision process, you have to hold your gut, what you feel accountable. So what do I mean by that? I, I'm totally fine, Matt, if you go into a meeting and we had a strategic plan and, and in the meeting, you say to me, you know what, Annie, my gut told me something different. And so I went a different way. I'm totally fine. As long as when I say to you, okay, great. Can you explain to me what it was that caused you to change your mind and why you, you thought that this was a better direction? If you say to me, well, I told you because my gut told me so, and that's your final answer. I'm like, whoa, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. now we're away from the situation. You have to be held accountable to it. So the, the way that I try to put it is if you can't teach me to replicate your decision, you need to think about the gut feeling that you mm. had. So many right. people run businesses that way. Right. So you need to be able to communicate to me. And by the way, if you can't do that, then you're only ever going to be the only person touching the cash register. Yeah. Because how can you possibly delegate and trust the delegation if you can't communicate to people and teach people how, how to run the strategy, right? How to do the things that you think that you have that's the special sauce. <laughs> so- what, what I like to say is sometimes you do that, right? Sometimes I ask you those questions and I get you to hold your gut accountable and you can, you, you tell me just fine. And it's like, great, keep, keep going that way. I, I think your gut's really good in those spots. And then sometimes what happens is you say, you know what, now that I think about it, I have no idea. Like I totally can't justify this at all. And so now you change, now what will happen is that that will actually start to train your gut to end up with better results. So, so here's an example from my own life. I played poker 
I started playing, as I said, professionally in 94. Right around uh, 2004, 2005, I started teaching poker seminars. And my game took a leap. Like, I mean, a leap when I did that. And the reason why was that I discovered there was a whole bunch of stuff that I was doing that was just my gut feel, that was just my in the moment, that I could not coherently explain to anybody in the room. And I went and said, oh, I got to think about this. Like, I need to change my, I think I need to change those things that I'm doing. And then there were other things which I could explain perfectly fine. So those things I reinforced. And then I, I took a lot of stuff out of my game that I realized that I had high confidence in because I could feel it, right? Like I could feel it in my belly that it was the right thing to do. And I had all this confidence in the things that I was doing. But when I then tried to explain it to another human being, I was like, oh my gosh, wait, I can't do that. And my game totally transformed through the teaching process. That's the great use of gut. Hmm. Love that. My buddy Hank Norman says a requirement of excellence is the ability to unpack your expertise. Love it. That's, I love that. That, I am going to look that quote up. I'm going to use it. And if if I have your permission, I would like to take that from you because that is a really beautiful way to say that. You must. It's one of the hardest things for experts to do. Right. Is to be able to unpack their expertise so that someone else of whatever experience level can absorb it it's extremely difficult to do well and and i think that going back to this idea of how we reason to be right this is a way that we can be confronted with uh essentially a dissenting opinion in this case it's a little bit our own our own dissent to ourselves if we can't unpack it if we're just going well i just i just just my gut feel i've got a good gut Mm -hmm. um and you're just sort of stopping there uh, you have two choices, right? One is you can say, oh, I, 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 I need to examine this and I need to think maybe I should change the way that I'm doing this. Another is just to say, well, but I just know it's true and just sort of leave it there because you do, really don't want to challenge the things that you believe are part of your identity as an expert. But what I would argue is that you should go a step higher in what it means to be an expert, right? Instead of saying, well, I don't want to challenge this thing I've been doing all this time that, that's part of my identity as an expert, reframe it that part of being an expert is the will the willingness to go back and change things that have been status quo for you Mm. and that's what allows you to continue to go forward and that's the true definition of expertise it's always challenging your own status quo yeah that's when it gets fun yes (laughs) yes that's when you go into a yurt you know the smoke and yes exactly listen in real life though it's also how relationships get twisted off it's how partnerships get twisted off i mean there's a lot of problems in that exploration if it's if it's done poorly but i think that's that is the fun part of it all that's when it gets great i want to ask this one question because in in part of the structure of the the your uh consulting when i was researching it for today Number one pulled up workplace culture. Mm -hmm. And I'm a culture freak now because I wasn't for so many years. We torched our company a couple years ago, and I literally said to the group, um, I don't care if the company goes to zero. We're rebuilding this company on mission statement and core values. And we're going to come up with them ourselves. I'm not going to dictate it. We're going to figure it out ourselves. And now everything, we we lost seven guys, by the way. They all went and started competing equipment finance companies. It cost us 30 million bucks in about a week. And I said, maybe you guys didn't hear me. I don't care if it goes to zero. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter to me. We're going to rebuild the company. And this year, 
you know, I think we'll have 40% growth this year. So it, there's no I love that. That's opposite of temporal discounting. I like that. I don't know what That's that means. Really what is temporal? What does temporal discounting mean? What does sure. That mean? So temporal discounting is uh, taking a huge discount in the present at the expense, expense of the future. So uh, I'll, I'll give you this, a very simple example. Uh, I say to you, hey, Matt, do you want $100 in a year or, or I'll give you $80 now, your mm-hmm. choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people take the $80 now, even though I, I really don't know a bank account that you can stick $80 in and end up with $100 mm-hmm. at the end of the year. I think you'll end up with like 81. Um, and so that's just saying like, I'm, I, I don't want to feel the pain now. Like the pain is too horrible, right? So, uh, so what you did was say, I'm willing to take the short-term pain. Like, I'll do that. I'm willing not to take the $80 now because I think I'm going to end up with $100 at the end of the year. Um, you know, but it's not it's not the way that we're naturally built. We're kind of we're, we're built for the moment. We're yeah. built to avoid the short term pain and take the short term gain, um, even if that comes at the sacrifice of what might happen in the future. But you know what? You know why that happened, though? And it wasn't I, there was a component of, look, I'm OK. We can handle the downside. Right. There was a piece of that, which is important because not everybody can make that decision if you need the bills to be paid on Friday. Right. Right. It's a harder situation. But but what it was for me was I had committed a year or so before to become my version of a world class leader. And the only way that I think you could become a world class leader is to have the confidence in the darkest moments to torch it, to burn it yep. and say, follow me. It's going to be OK. I say to everybody in the office, listen. And this may be egotistical. I want to ask before we close on this, but um, I, you should bet on my horse, right? It, I'm a, I'm a, so, I'm yeah. a good horse to bet on. I tell everybody so, that I'm a good horse to bet on in so certain here, situations. Yeah. So here, here's the great thing about what you just said. It's like people ask me a lot. Um, Don't you have to have like a huge ego to be a poker player? And I said, well, it it, it kind of depends on what you mean by that. Right. So ego actually can be a big problem depending on what you have an ego about. So you can tell me if, if you agree with me in terms of your own, the, the, the way that you think about yourself. There's a difference between saying, I believe that I have this game beat, right? This game of poker, which is really complicated and really hard and you unpeel a layer and you find out that there's 10 more layers than you thought there were underneath. And then you unpeel another layer and there's even more there. And you sort of, as you learn more, you feel, you realize like, Oh my gosh, this is so complicated. Like I will literally never come close to solving even a small percentage of what I need to solve in order to be really have poker solved. So that's obviously humility in the face of the game itself. That being said, of course you don't want to have humility in the face of your opponents, I believe when I sit down at a table that I can beat the people I'm playing with and that you should bet on me to be able to do that. But I think that part of what gets me to a place where I feel like I can beat the people that I'm playing at the table with is a recognition of how hard the actual game is, right? Like how hard it is that that that's the mountain I'm never going to get on top of, right? I'm just trying to, to inch my way up. It's so great. It's the confidence in your search for accuracy because you know that you'll just keep you'll keep making the adjustments you'll keep making the adjustments you'll keep making the adjustments a quick um going back to the workplace culture though sure and the reason we we got on that is i'm a freakazoid for culture this in this this concrete yet intangible element that all great things teams relationships organizations company have why is it number one 
on your sort of quadrant of your four uh, your four approaches? Why is that sure. one number one? Well, so I, I think the reason is that if you do not have a culture that allows for dissenting voices, that nothing I tell you is going to be particularly helpful beyond that. So I really try to help companies to create a way to uh, have safety in people's willingness to be able to give an alternative viewpoint, to uh, go against consensus, to focus in on what's the process of the decision as opposed to the outcome, to, to figure out how not to point figures at each other when things don't go so well. You know, these all have to do with how much are you allowing people to speak their minds and, and to feel like they're part of the decision process and to get buy-in um, to the people who dissent. And also to get uh, the, the other piece is not just, okay, you, how do we make it so that you can allow the dissenting voices to be heard, but also how do you get everybody to embrace the uncertainty, to understand that what we care about is the decision quality and we recognize that it, it may go one way or the other, but we're, you know, we don't know. Um, all we can do is increase the probability of the good outcomes happening. So like, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. When you have a team and you are focused on outcomes, like a lot of people are like, we are results oriented, right? That's the, the way that we like to speak, right? Um, and you're focused on outcomes. Now what happens is that the people on your team know, ooh, if I have bad outcomes, you know, there's, I'm not going to get a raise or I'm not going to get a promotion or so I've got to fend off the bad outcomes. Um, here, here's a couple of things that can result from that. I'll give you two examples that, that are bad for you. One is, let's say that you've got two people like Christine and Bob, and if they cooperated on a deal, they would both do better. But Bob knows that Christine will do much better than he will. So he'll do better than he would have if he's not cooperating, but not as well as Christine would do through the cooperation. If you are judging those two people solely on their outcomes and not on the process of the way that they work in their decision-making, Bob won't, won't cooperate in that situation. He say, no, I'm in competition with Christine. I, I need to have better outcomes than she does. So I'm not going to help her have a good outcome, even though overall it's better for both of them. Um, he'll, he'll make sure that she doesn't do well. So that's obviously really bad. You don't want to create com competition when you'd actually like cooperation, right? So that's one thing that can happen. Uh, here's another example of what can happen when you don't allow for uh, process to be important and, and to allow the uncertain to be baked in um, is uh, you'll end up with people, for example, who will just close a lot of deals, but not close them at the best price. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if I know that if I break a deal, um, it's going to be bad. Or in your case, if I know that somebody defaults on a loan, it's going to be really bad for me. I'm going to start being too conservative in who I lend to. And I'm going to leave a lot of money on the table for you because I don't ever want to have a default. Like what, what the, com the conversation that you just had with the bank, for example, if you weren't somebody who sort of understood this stuff, you could start being too conservative in the way that you lend, which could really hurt your business in the long run because you're trying to, to, to so completely fend off uh, the bad outcome that someone's going to point their finger at. It's like you just don't want the Seahawks fans yelling at you for passing the ball ever. So all of a sudden you become way too conservative. That's also really bad for you. It's major. So, yeah, so I can come in and I can teach you all sorts of stuff about building out decision trees and uh, what kind of, you know, how to be a good information gatherer and 
you know, how to work through like uh, a strategic plan, but none of it is going to be particularly helpful if the right culture is in, in place to support the decision making. I don't know why this just happened in this conversation, and I've, I've had a lot of conversations through the podcast. I never had this happen, and something just happened to me. As you were as you were explaining those examples, I had this memory of why for so long I was uh, conflict adverse. And it was because as a kid, my adopted dad used to, the minute there was conflict with him, he had to default to right. And his Mm -hmm. way of proving right was calling you every name in the book. There was no logic to it, even though he was a very intelligent guy. He was a lawyer. Right. But he, but he, he beat you down to make his version of right happen. And through that, I shut down against conflict, where maybe at your kitchen table, you guys were embracing it and enjoying it and, and triggering it and saying, keep going, keep going. For me, it was how quick can I get out of this situation? Right, And right. the same thing has occurred in business, at least the first X number of years of business. And I think it's why these conversations with the bank are so refreshing to the bank, because I'm not defending my position. I'm like, lay, right. lay it out, guys. I want to hear it all. There's nothing you could say to me even if you said we're not going to buy your loans anymore, I was called stupid and idiot and retarded moron every day of my life. There is nothing that could occur in this conference call that that's going to ruffle me up. So let's get it going. Well, first of all, I'm very sorry for that. I mean, particularly as a child. No, 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 nothing, no, nothing to be sorry about. It, all of that stuff made me who I am. I, I have, I have no, no anger towards my, my adopted dad for any of it. In fact, I, I'm actually halfway appreciative of it because all of those reflections that I've been going through has, has made, made life more fulfilling for me. Really, I mean, every, a lot of people say that. I'm like, I'm like, bring it, I, I'm like, I thank the guy for it. It made me who I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I actually have, I kind of have an interesting perspective on that. I'm like, you can be thankful for it and you can say that that made me who I am. And, and I think that I'm a pretty special person and also be sad that it happened. So I've decided that you can hold you like, cause I've had stuff like that in my life that I can hold both. I can hold both thoughts at the same time and it's okay to acknowledge. <laughs> I, run that it from, wasn't fun. I run from the sadness. I don't want, right, I don't want it, to be, you sad. know, it's like, okay, it wasn't fun. <laughs> that being said, some really good stuff came from it. That's sort of how I view it. <laughs> it sucked. There were a lot of bad nights. That's all I know. But but listen, I put it in perspective. You know that guy Bill Woodage that I mentioned earlier? My buddy Bill Woodage? Annie, that guy Bill Woodage that I mentioned earlier? Yeah. He had a similar situation in which Bill Woodage's daddy was a state cop. And his father was, a, was an alcoholic state trooper. And he would come home every night and berate Bill for hours, Bill said. His father would make him sit at the kitchen table while his father would drink and he'd call him every name in the book. And then when it, Bill said when it got real bad, his father would pull out his loaded state <gasps> trooper gun and put it on the table. And when Bill Woodage tells me that story, you know what I say? Hell, mine wasn't so bad. Yeah, well, that's true. It's, it's always good to have the, the comparison. There's I a guess. little perspective yeah. needed here. Yeah. I grew up in utopia compared to that. Wow. Nice. Right. I mean, we all nobody every... nobody ever took a gun out in front of me when I was a child. So there you go. I'm winning. So I would love to do something with you, and it might be difficult to do because we're 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 we're, we're both not interested in summarizing quick decisions, right? Maybe I don't know if that's the way to decide to you, but let's see. But I'd love to play a little bit of a, a, a lightning round, which means okay. you just have to pick one or the other. 
You, okay. you we can't we can't uh, debate. You've got to just All pick right. one or the other. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. And it, here's the context. In what 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 decision wins in money? In making more oh. money. Okay? The show's called You Need More Money. The audience needs to know how to make more money. So are All you right. ready? I have, I have a few questions here. Ready? I feel like, the, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm back in college. Okay. I'm ready. Emotion versus analyzing data. Analyzing data. EQ versus IQ. Hmm. I'm going to go RQ. People, I'm giving you a third Such, answer. I knew you were going to do that. I just RQ, knew RQ. you were going to break the rules. RQ is rationality quotient. Uh, people should look it up. So it's, uh, uh, think about it as like street smarts, right? So there's lots of very smart people who are very bad decision makers. You didn't even care about my rules. I mean, really, you no. just, you did, you were like, whatever. Here's, I'm, I'm just going RQ. I'm going RQ. Sorry. RQ leans to the EQ side, I think. Uh, I think that it's actually, I think it's a good uh, marriage of, of EQ and IQ. Mm. Um, I think it actually marries them pretty nicely, but I'm a big believer in our, our Q. I think street smarts are where it's at. You don't even care. You broke the rules of my game. I do, I, Yeah, I, there I, you I, go. I, all right, here we go. Two more. Ready? Hard work okay. versus smart work. Oh, smart work for sure. For sure. Okay. For, well, I mean, I'm not 100% certain of anything. <laughs> my, my, gut, my gut tells me, tells me smart work. I think hard work, um, it can be a lot of like rat on, a hamster on a wheel. Okay, last one. Flashiness versus mm. conservative. Huh. That's such an interesting choice. I, uh I want to say, I'm going to break the rules again. Non-flashy risk taker. <laughs> so like low it's key, not one low of the choices. Okay? Low-key risk taker. Low-key risk taker. Hmm. I agree with all, all four of, of your answers. Even though well, I'm, I'm going to look up RQ a little, spend a little more time on RQ. But. Actually, it's a really good thing to think about. Like, I mean, I think the EQ has gotten a lot of play. And I think it's a wonderful addition to thinking about different competencies that people have and what you might like want on your team. You know, you've got high EQ people and low EQ people, but I, I, I would love for RQ to, to get the kind of traction that EQ has gotten. Mm. Annie, it's been, it's been amazing. You're like a high RQ guy, by the way. Oh, you think so? Well, yeah. I mean, look at, look at your backstory. You, you must be high RQ. I think so. I mean, I think EQ can go to this other side of like train wreck, cry at every minute. I think it can be perceived like that. RQ to me is, is I love the term you used to street smart. It, it is, it yeah. is this antenna on the top of our heads, bringing in all kinds of data, which then somehow filters through to decision-making yeah. and and I, I'm agreeing with you. I think that, but I really do like this conservative risk taker thing. That's like a, a Warren Buffett to me. What might yeah. fit that role, right? Totally, like not flashy, but a risk taker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta a go back to that. Let's call it a, a mindful risk taker, an intentional, like intentionality. But let me go back to it just real quick on that last one. That flash versus conservatism. The bravado that you saw and see in both of your in multiple experiences that you've had, d does that does that usually lose in the game of money? The big watches, the fancy cars, the bright shirts, the big personalities versus 
versus the quiet risk taker? You know, I think it depends on uh, what you're trying to accomplish. Make in the context of the question is money making money. Well, no, but again, it, it depends on in what way you're trying to make money. I mean, I think that there's certain there's certain uh, things that you can be doing where the flash hmm. is really helpful. Um, uh, you know, I think that uh, there's certain types of sales jobs, for example, where the flash can be extremely helpful. Um, I think, is it is it helpful if you're really trying to have a long-term relationship where you're trying to get someone to invest in you? I, my guess is probably not as much. I mean, I, I, I think that that's a bad signal uh, in terms of somebody trusting you uh, with the she- with shepherd, you know, with shepherding their 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 money. Uh, for any kind of long period of time. But I, th- I think that there are things where the flash is helpful. Like I, I do think that there are some sales jobs where people are looking for that kind of glitz and bravado and whatnot, and you're more likely to close because of it. And now that's not to say, of course, that that's the only sales style, right? I mean, there's lots of sales styles that are like, I'm going to create a partnership with you so that we're going to create, you know, we're going to have a partnership of rationality and thinking these th- things through. And this is why you're going to, you're going to, uh, you know, buy from me. So, but, but I think that the flash can work in, in certain areas. I mean, I, I, again, but I think it's, I I think it's fewer. I think that you can get the sort of the non-flashy, like taking risk on at the right moment. I think that can work sort of across um, and it can work really well across. And the flash is like, you have to pick your lane. You know what I mean? The questions only work in the context of the of the topic. I mean, if you ask that question yeah. against the circus, right? Well, you know, nobody well, goes to a circus. <laughs> no well, one goes wait, to wait, a conservative wait. circus. No, I want my I want my um, uh, like tightrope walkers to be conservative <laughs> in the right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't get too flashy up there on the rope. No, it could be a clown, a guy dressed in a clown walking a tightrope. It could be a mixture of both. I mean, yeah, but you notice they're never like super high up, right? Oh, the insurance man. gets too high. <laughs> Nobody wants to see the person fall off the tightrope. You know, the tightrope. That, you know, I don't want no eat getting eaten by the lion. <laughs> I'm so glad we did video on this. Thank you for saying <laughs> yes to it. I mean, really, the, the 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 facial expressions have been killer. I hope you feel how much I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, yeah, no, awesome. it's 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 nice being able to see you while we talk. I'm normally just, you know. The book is called Thinking in Bets. Came out last month. We share the same publisher, right? Your publisher is Penguin Portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the same yeah. publisher. They did yeah. my book love, too. So. I cannot literally cannot say enough good things about them. Right, they were great to work. Love, with. love, love them. And when I was in the process of writing the book, and as I was about to release it. I, I had some people who uh, published books being like, oh, I bet it was so awful with your editor or I bet it was so horrible with those. And I'm like, what? No, they're like every single person that I have interacted with at that company has been like amazing. I agree completely. I want to give you a mindset thing that I had to shift on the book. Everyone told me there's no money in books. And you know what I believed? There's no money in books. Until I was just a couple of weeks ago talking to a friend of mine, very successful author. I told her that. And she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah. where did you get that idea from? There's no money in books. She's like, you sell a half a million copies of books. There's money in books. I'm like, why was I? It goes back to everything we talked about, at least on the yeah. mindset component of I was using other people's opinion of the process yeah. to determine my desire to be part of the process. It was so retarded. It was so ridiculous yeah. to think like that. So. So, but then, then you, you went and talked to somebody who has a different opinion and now you have a little more, you know, what I would say is that, uh, the right statement is, um, 
the the majority of the time there's no money in books but the 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 time that there is money in books there's a lot of money in books hmm. so you decide first of all if you're in it for the money recognize that it's a little bit like uh venture capital right it's like it's going to be a lot of failure but when you have the success the return is going to be so high and as long as you're okay with that kind of volatility you know be my guest but also maybe the point of the book isn't money anyway like maybe that's just a silly frame for why you would write a book in the first place i'm right? not del- so, the the, the yeah. i have no interest in making money on the book even for the long play whatever right. that's fine i have a business thank goodness that does it i'd hate to be in the business of writing books to make money right that would be a hard gig <laughs> That's certainly not why I wrote my book. <laughs> right. But but my book is the story of my brother-in-law. We lost my brother-in-law. Oh. Um, he died at 46 years old. My wife's only brother. They were, and I, I've said this before, um, I, I, I've been married 20 years. My wife and I are crazy about each other. we got three beautiful boys. But she loved her brother more than she loves me. Oh. And so it was the worst possible person to take from her life. He died at 46, left a wife and four kids with no <gasps> health insurance, no life insurance, and 100 bucks in the bank. And the, oh my gosh! And I wrote the story of how the heck does that happen to a guy who busted his butt for twenty five years? Yeah. And then the other component of the book is what is it like to be in a position where you can, through financial discipline, drop in and remove the guilt that he had, and that's what my wife and right. I were able to do. So it's really a wake up call to people that says get your money right because uh, most people are toying with their money, and they yeah. only it only gets serious when there's some thing that happens and it doesn't even get serious when it happens um to your friends it often only gets serious when it happens to you and i'm i'm trying to get people to think a little yeah. bit stronger about their money situation and put a little more time in it so well that's a that's a lovely book to write so it was it was uh, it was very emotional to tell you the truth yeah we 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 we, we, we lost him two years ago we had to relive all that stuff it was, it was tough to you i'll send you a copy of it. you know I I, somebody it. there's so, uh, somebody told me a friend of theirs just wrote a book about the death of their father mm-hmm. and uh the person's actually a comedian so it's a it's a funny retell like it's sort of like trying to look at it through the lens of humor and he told me it's been very hard for her being on the book tour because it's like she has yeah. to relive yeah. him dying every single every single time that she's talking about it so some of them, uh, for sure. it's a big deal to want to share that message in a way that you know is going to be painful for you i hope it uh, i hope it helps uh, a tremendous amount of people in getting their money situation right um, that's the whole point of the podcast too. How do we bring yeah. people on who we share these wonderful exchanges? So thank you for you for being with me today. It was awesome. Oh, I, it was. This was so freaking fun. <laughs> I appreciate that. I wasn't sure how it was yeah. going to go, but I, I knew video and everything. It was totally fun. I just knew you were going to break my rules. I knew it. I said to myself, <laughs> "She's not going to follow the instructions of these rules." I know it. So I appreciate yeah, you breaking I did my those best. rules. I I'm did. glad you broke them. I love yeah. it. Thanks, Annie. Great to meet you. All right. Thank you. You guys. See you soon. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.